The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. This week's special episode of Wheel Bearings, I have a very special guest here in studio with me, uh, Larry Burns, who, uh, when I first met him a little over a decade ago, he was uh, Senior VP of uh, Research and Development and Strategic Planning at General Motors, uh, more recently since t- uh, 2011. Well, since retiring in 2009, I think you've been worked as a consultant, and since 2011, you've also been a, a special consultant to the Google self-driving car project, which is now Waymo. And he's got a new book that's about to be published uh, called Autonomy, The Quest for the Self-Driving Car, and I forget the... How it will reshape your world. And how it will reshape your world. Great. Larry, welcome. I I appreciate you stopping by today. Um, And uh, it's every time I've had an opportunity to chat with you over the years, it's always been fascinating. You you always struck me as a, a rather unlikely person to be you know, in a leadership position at General Motors. Why don't we start off with kind of how you came to that position at GM? Because I think that's a very interesting story of, you know, how uh, how you rose up to the position you were at at GM and, and kind of what what your role was there over the years. Yeah, yeah it's nice seeing you, Sam, and thank you for having me on your show. Um, I went to General Motors Institute, uh, finished up there in 1973 and studied mechanical engineering. And Fortunately, my sponsor was the GM Research um, Laboratory, which was a great place to be sponsored to do work as a young person in General Motors. I went out in graduate school, and by 1978, I'd finished up my Ph.D. in um, engineering from University of California, Berkeley. Thought hard about what I wanted to do next. I really aspired to be a professor, to be honest, but GM had paid for my education, and I felt at least had to pay something back and so I decided I would go back to General Motors in 1978 and work for about three years and then get on with my academic career. And I stayed at GM until 2009. Uh, my research was actually focused on um, the future of uh, logistics and production. If you recall, back in the 1980s, early 1980s, the freight industry is being deregulated. And my interest in transportation systems and manufacturing of cars led me to focus in on how production and logistics systems are going to change. This was before terms like supply chain management and Toyota production system. 
1988, Bob Eaton, who was leading the tech center at the time, asked me if I thought about moving into other parts of GM. And I said, yeah, I love being a researcher. And he said, well, we think you ought to try something different. And within a month, I was in a group called the Buick Oldsmobile Cadillac Group, responsible for um, resource planning and production control. Very importantly, also involved in uh, several studies to decide, unfortunately, which GM plants we were going to close because we were really getting into some tough, tough times uh, leading into the early 1990s. Subsequently, I moved uh, to a, a car division in Lansing, and I was responsible for a major product program. It's called the N Cars, cars like the Pontiac mm-hmm. Grand Am, and took that program from cradle to grave, which was the most phenomenal job you can have in the auto industry. It's this miracle of how do you design, engineer, source, build, and produce, in this case, two assembly plants worth of cars, one every 30 seconds, and really learned the magic of the industry. And after that, Rick Wagner tapped me on my shoulder and said, would I come and be his director, executive director of planning for North America? As Rick progressed, I progressed, and he asked me to take on R&D in 1998 and took that on globally as well as planning globally for GM then took on strategic planning. So it was a great career. I never thought about leaving, but I was in a position where Rick um, was challenging me as really his only senior staff member to think longer term. And he literally asked me, um, if we were going to invent the automobile today rather than 100 years ago, what would we do different? And that was a very liberating question, Sam. I mean, really got me thinking about the historical DNA of the automobile which really hadn't transformed in over uh-huh. a century. And what's going on to at that time, the year 2000, that could change that DNA. And I began to see this convergence of electric vehicles and autonomous vehicles and different kinds of business models. Couldn't see it nearly as clearly as I see it today. Sure. And um, uh, we wanted to illustrate that thinking. We did a concept car called Autonomy. It showed at the North American Auto Show in January 2002. And, you know, I was hooked then. I absolutely became convinced that the future of the car was going to be software, electronics, by wire steering, by wire braking, managing that little footprint where the rubber meets the road and controlling the torque and wheel motors and you name it, uh, batteries, fuel cells. And um, then uh, the exciting thing was the DARPA challenges came along and being head of R&D, I thought it was important that GM participate. So we sponsored Carnegie Mellon uh, University and uh, we won that race together, and I certainly became convinced that maybe not in 2007, but certainly we were probably within a 10-year window where maybe cars could drive themselves. So I was a little bit different. I wouldn't characterize myself as a car guy. Uh-huh. You know, I went to University of Michigan for my master's, Berkeley for my doctorate. Those are pretty liberal schools. I would say I was maybe more on the hippie side, and um, but I was fascinated with the freedom that automobiles provided people. When I Moved out to California, I bought a Chevy van and customized it, probably slept in that van 80 nights a year for three years. It was a great lifestyle. And um, so I, I just thought about automobiles, not through zero to 60 and cornering, but through uh, accessibility and freedom and what it allowed people to do. The sad thing is a lot of people can't own a car. They don't can't afford one. They're not capable of driving one. And um, or they're too old. And um, so that freedom didn't carry over to everybody. And uh, so I've been excited about new ways of, of providing that mobility. Right. And, you know, that, that whole idea, and we'll, we'll come back to this a little bit, but in a little bit, but that whole idea of accessibility, you know, in addition to safety, you know, those, I think those are two of the core 
things that are driving this this movement towards developing automated vehicles. But you know, it's, um, you know, in, in your role leading General Motors R and D, you know, at least up until up until the, about the time you retired, you know, f- through most of that the history of that organization from when it was formed, what, I think about the in the nineteen twenties or the early thirties mm-hmm. yep. under uh, Charles Kettering, yes. you know, he was the first leader of GM R and D. You know that. You know that was it was kind of unusual in the auto industry in that it was a, a real basic research lab. You know, it's very much more like uh, the AT and T research labs yes. than what you you know what you typically find in the the so called R and D areas of most automakers. Yes, you know, uh, GM R and D developed a lot of fascinating technologies. You know, created the first automotive fuel cell. Created. Uh, catalytic converters, you know, uh, a lot of other technologies came out of GM R&D. Many of them, you know, went to production and, you know, have become industry standards. Others, not so much. But, you know, that's kind of the, I think that's that's the nature of doing yes, basic is. research. Yes. Um, you know, and automation, you know, is, was, is not a, a new thing by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, you know, GM was thinking about it as far back as the 1950s with the mm-hmm. Firebird 2 concept. Yes. Uh, you know, and there's there's a famous film, you know, promotional film done at the time showing, you know, a family going for a ride down the highway yes. in this thing and yeah. and handing off control uh, to the thing you know, as, as the, to the car as they, you know, they rolled down the highway and the, the family was, you know, having their conversation. So it was, it was interesting to see that. Um, in the late 90s, there was a program, the Intelligent Vehicle Highway System. Yes. Were you, I know GM was involved mm-hmm. in that experiment. Were, were you personally involved oh, yes. in that? Oh, uh, yes. Uh, not, not, not personally, but um, in the late 90s, uh, being responsible for GM R&D, I was very much involved in uh, understanding what was going on with that. And subsequently, we have ITS America. In the 90s, it was interesting. Um, I was really concerned about the the approach to an autonomous vehicle that required roadway infrastructure. So a lot of the thinking back then is maybe we could put magnets in the road and cars could uh, drive themselves autonomously. And I thought it was a bit of a of a pipe dream to ever think we would ever get the funding for that massive infrastructure. And similarly, by the time we had it installed in um, New York, um, you know, what we put in California was probably obsolete, and we'd have to go back and keep it up. And the public sector and local communities just didn't have the capability to maintain the infrastructure. But a couple things changed, Sam. I mean, one was GPS. Along comes GPS, and suddenly you can locate yourself approximately on the planet. And it came out of classified research, obviously, but the unclassified systems looked like they were going to begin to bring some value. Then we had the wireless communication that came along, and GM was very into that with OnStar. Mm -hmm. And then Moore's Law just kept ticking along, and the speed at which processing could take place and sensor development. And lo and behold, it wasn't any one technology. It was a convergence. And suddenly I could see a pathway to this future of autonomous cars that didn't require the roadway infrastructure. It was going to be about satellites and data and communications and um, uh, maybe there would be a few places where you needed to put some infrastructure where you might lose a GPS signal or something like that. That changed my thinking completely. I began to think it might be viable. Um, so it's a great lesson in, in research and development. Um, as an engineer and as an optimistic technologist, to be frank, I, I really think um, engineers exist to take what's possible and make it real, and they're very, very good at that through learning cycles. 
Yeah, I just felt there wasn't anything scientifically that said we couldn't pull this off. I could see the value of getting the driver out of the car. Um, at that time, driving distraction was a huge issue. It's still a huge issue. And I became convinced, talking with my colleagues, that driving was the distraction. Why else would someone send a text going 70 miles an hour in a 4,000-pound machine if they didn't think it was more important to do that than drive carefully? So, so all kinds of really transformational opportunities beyond just the automation of the task that would come with the driverless vehicle. And um, it's just, you know, a great story. And the book Autonomy gets at that. It's a story about learning cycles. It's a story about getting out there and failing and failing and failing until you finally uh, get the technology to the point where it can create value. Yeah, and that, that's the the interesting thing about the book because you know during the the course of the the program from about two thousand four through two thousand seven, we'd hear the news reports. You know, and, and I covered some of it myself um, about when when the events came you know came up when they actually had the competitions in two thousand four, two thousand five, and two thousand seven. Um, you know, especially the first year when none of the you know, I think. The uh, the original CMU um, Hummer based vehicle uh, was went the farthest and it only got I think about seven Six, miles. Seven miles, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> um, you know, and you know, then the, the following year, finally, you know, um, several vehicles actually made yeah. and completed yeah. the full yeah. 150 roughly mile course yes. through the desert. Yes. Yeah, um, but we we didn't really hear much about what went on behind the scenes. Yeah. You know, how 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 these. Um, programs developed um, both at CMU, at Stanford, and at many of the other uh, academic institutions and companies yeah. that were that were involved. And it was it was fascinating to read your your inside take on that because I mean you certainly from the time you know through the the, the third phase of that when, yeah. you know GM's involvement with CMU, um, you certainly had a lot of visibility, but you also became close with a lot of the people involved. When did, yeah. when did you first really get involved with well, that? Well, it was, it, was, it, it was interesting. You know, we had 9-11, which was mm -hmm. an absolute tragedy for all of us. We enter into the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. Our soldiers are getting maimed and killed from explosive devices along the roadways, and the Department of Defense desperately wanted a vehicle that could drive itself and take the soldiers out of harm's way. So DARPA... I think part of the story in the book is this is a great use of taxpayer money in my judgment. DARPA uh -huh. kicked off these challenges because they weren't happy with what they're getting out of the defense industry at the time. And so they were tapping into all of the bright minds around the country to try to create a vehicle that could literally drive itself. Um, GM did not sponsor a team in the first couple races because they were racing across the desert and it felt like a defense project. But once DARPA pivoted from driving across the desert to driving in a, an urban area, we, know, we knew we had to be involved. And Red Whitaker, who was the leader of the Carnegie Mellon team, um, approached me about sponsorship. I fell in love with the guy the day he came and visited me. I asked him, why, why would Carnegie Mellon win this? I mean, I really wanted to do it, to win it, also to learn. And he made a pretty compelling case as to why he felt his team would be the best. So we became the lead sponsor on the Carnegie Mellon uh, program. But this is a great story with great characters. Red's a great character, Chris Ermson, Brian Seleski. The competitor in the second race in the desert was Sebastian Thrun, the competitor to mm -hmm. Red's team. Sebastian is a brilliant guy, and he was taking a different approach based on computer vision and artificial intelligence and a very novel approach to mapping, which subsequently became 
the foundation of a Google Street View. Right. And all of these things were coming together. And um, so this, the, the story needed to be told because I see there's all kinds of heroes out there um, uh, living a, a pauper's lifestyle, quite honestly. These young people didn't have big budgets to do these driverless cars, and they were you know, sleeping in tents in the desert and uh, pushing the limits of testing. I want young, my aspiration for the book, quite honestly, Sam, is that there's some kid in high school, maybe in ninth grade, that reads autonomy and says, I want to be able to do what those guys did in the DARPA Urban Challenge. I want to get out there and push the limits of engineering know-how for the good of the world and experience that because it seems like such a fun, neat thing to be part of. And so I thought that story needed to be told. You know, 20 years from now, someone's going to write history books on this and they might pick some popular character and say that, that person invented autonomous vehicles, much like many people believe Henry Ford invented the car. Mm -hmm. Henry Ford played a big role in the car. He popularized right. the car. He didn't invent the car. I just felt people like Red Whitaker and Brian Seleski, Chris Urmson, Sebastian Thrun, and then following on, people like Larry Page and Sergey Brin that stepped up and said, we want to make this real, not just a, a defense um, a race, but a real thing. I, I think those people, their stories needed to be told. And uh, this needed to be celebrated. Yeah, and I agree. I think you know the the idea of you know seeing how these teams you know work with very small budgets compared to what you traditionally well, consider yeah. an automotive development budget. Yeah. You know, um, you know maybe a you know a, a few million dollars at most for yeah. any of these teams, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you know worked night and day for months on end yes. to to build these vehicles and develop this technology. Take take these nascent technologies and pull them together and create something that actually worked at least you know within the limited scope of what you're doing but it, it was it was a first it was a real proof of concept yeah, yeah, that this yeah. could be that this this could be something viable yeah uh, this is a great example of, of I, I learned this concept from a friend of mine named Chunko Nui um, he, he's a strategy advisor and a great writer but Chunka taught me think big start small learn fast mm -hmm. And then ultimately, what you do that so you can scale smart. But think big, start small, learn fast. So people were thinking really big. A car could drive itself. DARPA was starting small. Well, if we think it can, let's see if we can do it in a race. And then by through three races, the learning cycles were phenomenal. Yeah. And then you look at the car that won that race. It was a, a Chevy Tahoe. My first ride in it was about a year before the race. I went out to Pittsburgh where we were doing our development work with Carnegie Mellon. I just wanted to see how the team was doing, and they showed me the car riding around us sort of in this industrial piece of land, um, old steel mill parcel of land along the river, and I said, can I take a ride? And they looked at me kind of funny. And I said, well, you're the sponsor, okay. So they kind of wedged me into the vehicle. There was hardly any room to move because it was totally filled with hardware and set it off on an autonomous route. Sam, within a minute, I was getting car sick. I hadn't paused to think. They didn't develop this for a nice ride. They developed it to drive autonomously, so the thing was and, accelerating and, and breaking and bouncing all around, and I get out half-nauseous, and they're really laughing. I think it was pretty funny, because they'd, honestly, they'd put, put one over on me. But that was my first ride, but it was so exciting to be to be with that team. And then I go out to race day, and it was um, the, the race was phenomenal. It was um, ES, ESPN um, uh, filmed it, mm -hmm. and um, it was about 3,500 people there. Uh, Larry Page and Sergey Brin were there, for example. I, I spent the whole three days there, and it was just so much fun to see how this race played out. But it's 
It's a great lifestyle when you're creating new prototypes and you're breaking ground and for the first time showing people things are real. And then um, by the time uh, Google decided to commit to this and they put their team in place, I went out to Mountain View in December of 2010 and had my first ride in their Prius. So this is like three years. Uh And they had taken what was a completely filled Tahoe with instrumentation all over its exterior, and they had it down to a modest set of exterior sensors and pretty much everything fit into the, um, the trunk of the Prius, almost everything in the spare tire compartment. It was shocking the progress that it made, and then took a ride on public roads for the first time in, in December 2010. Yeah, I, I was fortunate to have my first ride in an autonomous vehicle at, at CES in 2008 when yeah, we went out there. Yeah, in Boss. Yeah. And, and, and boss and, and you're right. I mean, it was packed with gear. You know, <laughs> and I was I was just uh, chatting with uh, Brian Selesky a couple of weeks ago. Um, I, 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 was, I, I asked him about the computing hardware that was in there uh, to compare it to what we're using today. You know, and it, you know this this truck had the entire cargo area was filled with yeah. a server rack you know full of computers you know and I think, you know the the 10 blade computers they had in there uh the total performance capability added up to about 1.8 billion instructions per second and today you know we've got stuff out that's running you know nvidia is delivering parts you know their xavier chip a single chip solution that does 30 teraflops, you know, thir- <laughs> you know, it's, it's like 15,000 times the performance capability yeah. of what was, what was remar- in Moss. It, it, That is remarkable when you, I think it's real important for people to understand it's, it's not one technology that's making this possible. It's really a convergence of mapping, uh-huh. uh, digital maps, um, really street view on steroids is the way I like to put it, with onboard processing, so again, Moore's Law or, or Taylor Design Chips, as, as you're referencing, Sensors and um, you know the early developers, you know, had a lot of redundancy in their sensor solutions. Just because you're on public roads, you need to be safe. And then uh, software and actuation systems for all of that. And um, to continue to move forward, they've brought in artificial intelligence, machine learning, exploring edge cases. But um, and and we've made great progress. Um, If I said. Uh, we were 99% of the way there. You might say that sounds great. If it was a speech recognition system, you'd say that's fantastic. But for a car, that's not good enough because there's three trillion miles driven a year, and that remaining one percent would be a lot of crashes. So you and, get... and that's you know the the reality is most of the cra- you know most of the crashes we have are in that one percent range. Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. So you got to get way out on that 99.999 tail and the learning the disciplined, structured learning of the companies that are doing this way out on the cutting edge, the world-leading companies, is so impressive to see. Are we there all the way? No. Um, There haven't been, all of the circumstances haven't been discovered and solutions haven't been created for everything. But again, in the 10, 10, 11 years since the Dark Urban Challenge, the progress is absolutely phenomenal. And the solutions to the remaining things really lie in a system solution. I call that kind of the, the power of and. It's the connecting of these dots. And whether it's a better sensor, a better map, a faster processor, a better algorithm, only those people working on that cutting edge of trying to accumulate miles on public roads every day and bringing that back to the laboratory and finding the ways to deal with that, they're the ones that understand how close we are and uh, what it's going to take to get it to the, the final goal. And, and speaking of convergence and, you know, bringing technologies together, 
you know, uh, that, you know, electrification plays a big part in this. Mm-hmm. When, when we first met, um, you know, it was around the launch of the Chevy Volt concept. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, you know, uh, I think, I think the, one of the early times that I, that I saw you was uh, when you were introducing the, the version of the Volt that was uh, going to be shown at the Shanghai Auto Show um, with uh, the fuel cell. You know, you had the original one with the battery and the motor, and then you had the fuel cell version. And, you know, you've always been a big proponent of electric, electrification. And all of these, all this other hardware that we're putting into these automated vehicles takes a lot of electrical power. Yeah. And so there's, there's a, a natural convergence there between vehicle electrification and, yes. uh, and autonomy, uh, as well as the, the connectivity. And deploying the, you know, as we, as we look at starting to deploy these uh, autonomous vehicles in, in mobility services, there's a, a natural fit there with electrification. We can actually really accelerate the adoption of electrification into the transportation ecosystem, yeah. Yeah. you know, because we're, you know, these vehicles will potentially be accumulating a lot more miles than individually owned vehicles and replacing multiple vehicles. And that's an area that you've done a lot of research on both yeah. electrification, but also how many vehicles, how many individual vehicles can be replaced um, by autonomous mobility service vehicles. Yeah, yeah. one of the positions I took on after I left GM was to lead the program for sustainable mobility at Columbia University. Jeff Sachs, who runs the Earth Institute there, asked me if I'd come in and do that. And what Jeff and I were most interested in is what what is the potential of autonomous and electric vehicles um, when you put them together and then you design the vehicle for the most typical trips we make, not the rare occurrence trips or the occasional trips, the most typical trips. You know, think about our cars typically carry four to, can carry four to six people, but 80% of the trips are one and two person. Our cars can go over 100 miles an hour, but our average speeds in cities, you know, the car I have, you know, I always monitor my average speed. It's usually around 30 to 35 miles an hour. My wife is around 25. And then, you know, we ha- insist on a range of three to 400 miles in our cars, but most trips, eight, 80% of the trips are less than seven miles. So you begin to look at all of that and you say, what if I tailor designed the vehicle for the typical trips we make? Make it electrical and make it autonomous. What could that cost? And that's the work we did at Columbia at the Earth Institute. And we, did, we studied Ann Arbor as one of the case study cities. And we became convinced that the typical out-of-pocket cost for a car today, including parking, is on the order of 65 to 75 cents a mile. That's depreciation, finance, gasoline, maintenance, insurance, and parking. Your time cost also has to be factored in. And that's a contentious issue, how much you value your time when you're driving. I just took median income and divided it by average speed, and that comes in around another 75 cents. So you're looking at about a buck fifty a mile, Sam, to own and operate a car. And study after study, whether it was Ann Arbor, Austin, Columbus, Manhattan, Palm Beach County, Florida, we felt we could get close to 20 cents a mile um, for these tailor-designed autonomous electric vehicle systems profound uh, consumer benefit and it was a better experience because the vehicle would pick you up at your door drop you off at your door you didn't have to worry about parking you didn't have to worry about spending your time driving you didn't have to worry about shopping for a car insuring a car maintaining a car and um, stopping for gas so we concluded you could get a better experience at lower cost and um, that, that, that was pretty exciting to us. And I went out and spoke a lot about that, that result because it was so transformational. 
at the end of the day, I concluded the path to electric vehicles was through autonomous vehicles. And you might say, why is that? The autonomous vehicle takes the driver out of the car. Therefore, the ability to reposition the car when it's empty, whether it's your personally owned car or a shared car, you don't have the cost of a person in that. Mm -hmm. That means you probably want to go into business as a transportation service. A transportation service optimizes cost per mile. And the savings on electricity when you optimize cost per mile is really important. It, it can be 5 to 10 cents a mile less costly in electricity than gasoline. And if you design this machine for a 300,000-mile life, that's $15,000 to $30,000 lifetime savings, which more than covers any premium associated with the electrification of the car. So that was sort of the epiphany we walked away with. As autonomous vehicles lead to electric vehicles, you want both of those and transportation service business models. I really want to emphasize the next point, though. Transportation service doesn't mean everybody is sharing the cars. It doesn't mean that's the only way you can get at that Uber without a driver. You can still have a dedicated use vehicle. It's your personal valet, but I will provide it to you through a subscription, and I'll be your service provider because you're going to want me to park your car, you're going to want me to re-energize your car, you're going to want me to maintain your car and get all those hassles out of your life, but you're the dispatcher. Mm -hmm. So this transportation service is every bit as much about personal, dedicated use of a vehicle as it is the Uber or shared use model. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think there's a huge potential for uh, mobility services or transportation services to uh, you know, address a whole slew of societal issues that we've got, you know, both in terms of cost, but also accessibility, as yeah. we mentioned earlier. You know, there's a lot of people who, for a variety of reasons, you know, either can't or don't want to drive, you know, whether they're, they're elderly or young or disabled, you know, the blind. I was on a panel last year at the at Automobility Detroit Auto Show with uh, Mark Riccobono, the president mm -hmm. of the National Federation for the Blind, you know, and they see this as a huge opportunity to provide personal mobility for people, you know, to, to give them independence to, to be able to yeah. get around. I mean, there, there's a, still a lot of issues, um, you know, a lot of logistical issues to be addressed around all of this. You know, um, a couple of weeks ago at the management briefing seminars, I was chatting with uh, Martin Searhouse from Nissan, mm -hmm. and in his presentation, one of the things that he showed um, was you know, a scene, you know, San Francisco airport of you know, all the taxis come up, you know, we talked about, you know, taxi cab drivers, you know, hop out of the vehicle, open the trunk, help people get their, their, uh, their bags in the trunk. And, you know, I think to deal with some of those logistical problems, you know, it, it's great that, you know, um, someone who can't see or can't walk can easily summon one of these vehicles and, and get them, you know, get them to get the vehicle to take them where they need to be. Uh, but there's still, you know, it's like, okay, how do we handle some of these other details, like yeah. getting them, you know, getting their bags in there, you know, or, or even just, you know, helping them find the right vehicle. And that's, that's an area that a lot of researchers are working oh, on. Yeah, and they'll, yeah. they'll address yeah. that, you know, there's yeah. a, a lot of interesting work being done around user experience yes. uh, yeah. with these vehicles, yeah. which is going to be dramatically different from what we're used yeah. to. And that all carries over to goods delivery as well mm -hmm. as moving people. This last mile opportunity for an autonomous vehicle to bring a package, package to your home, well, you still need to get the package out of the vehicle. Right. You don't want some robot throwing it up on your porch, but I think those interfaces are going to work out as the compelling benefits become clear. 
You know, I've looked carefully at how you apply autonomous uh, driving to over-the-road trucking, and my back-of-the-envelope calculations suggest we can reduce the cost of over-the-road trucking by more than 50%. There's the obvious savings of the cost of labor, which is about 64 cents a mile wages and benefit. But when you look at a, a tractor that pulls a semi-trailer and you ask yourself how many parts are on that tractor because there's a human driver, you realize the windshield, the doors, the windows, the seats, the air conditioning system, the steering wheel, a huge part of the bill of material of that tractor is there because a human drives it. And in fact, I believe the parts that you're going to eliminate on that tractor will cost more than the parts you're going to add to make it autonomous. Plus, you get the utilization of that over-the-road tractor probably 23 and a half hours a day versus 11 hours a day as a truck driver. Mm -hmm. So you pull all that together in a world that's rapidly chasing e-commerce and the pressure for one-day delivery is so great. Mm -hmm. I see this as being hugely transformational for long-distance trucking as well as last-mile delivery. And in fact, those last-mile delivery vehicles may be the same vehicles that are moving us around. The best, best way to save time for a driver is to eliminate the need for a trip. Mm -hmm. So I was kind of fixated, hey, this is great. I've got a driverless car. I can ride in the car and not spend my time driving. How might I use that time? Better yet, do I not need to take the trip? Can right. I dispatch my personal robotic valet to go pick something up for me? Um, I had to buy a new suit recently and had to have it tailored, and so I needed to go back to pick up the tailored suit. I'd rather have sent my personal valet to pick up my tailored suit and bring it back home and not even have to think about my time in the vehicle at all. So we're going to have a major change in how we live our lives and how we organize our days spatially and in time as these technologies play out as family units. Um, do we need two, three cars because we have uh, kids at home or can we get by with one mm -hmm. dedicated use vehicle for our family that I ride to work, I dispatch at home to take my wife to work, she dispatches at home to take my kid to school, then after school it takes my kid to soccer practice back to get me. So that vehicle might get a lot more usage per day replacing three vehicles that used to be in my household. Yeah, and you know, as the world gets more and more urbanized, um, you know, you, people are are less likely to be living in single-family dwellings. Mm -hmm. You know, they're more likely to be living in, you know, um, high-rises or multi-unit dwellings where they may not have a, a practical place to to park a car or yeah. to park multiple cars. Yeah. And so, you know, being able to shift away from that reliance on owning a vehicle. Uh, uh, you know, or multiple vehicles for a family, you know, to being able to utilize these services. And, you know, there's a lot of interesting experiments being done right now around the, the business models and how do we, yeah. how do we utilize these vehicles? You've got <clears throat> Neuro just announced a deal mm -hmm. with Kroger last week mm -hmm. uh, for their little, their, their small delivery vehicle that's yeah. not designed to carry people at all, but just to, to carry packages. Yeah. It's fantastic. Um, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. you know, um, Waymo's made recent announcements of deals with Walmart and, and other, mm -hmm. other companies. Um, you know, Ford has got their, their project in Miami where they're partnering with Domino's and yeah. Postmates, yeah. Um, Toyota and their ePallet Alliance. Yeah. So, you know, everybody's looking at, you know, how do we find the right balance, you know, to get that maximum utilization out of these vehicles and, yeah. the, and the trucks too, you know. Yeah. You know, truck trucking. You know, driving a long haul truck is not an easy job. Not easy at you know, all. And and they they have a shortage of drivers. Yes. You know, so uh, you know, it, if you you know if you're on the road eight ten hours a day, 
um, you know, that's, that's, that's challenging, you know, and it, it you know, it's, it has their safety issues associated yeah. with that too. So, yeah. um, if you can make that shift towards autonomous trucking, that would be, yeah. you know, there's a number of benefits there. I want to go back to a couple of themes you raised earlier. One, I am an optimist as it relates to technology and I want to tell a story that contributes to that. You also talked about this technology helping blind people mm -hmm. and the independence it brings. Um, in the early 90s, I lost my hearing. I lived a year uh, totally deaf, um, still not clear why I lost my hearing. And um, I then received a cochlear implant, which is fascinating because it depends on a lot of the same enabling technology that we're talking about today, processors and digital and, and um, sensors and energy storage with batteries. I received my first implant in 94 and my second one in 2011. So I hear out of both ears with cochlear implants, and I can do what I'm doing with you. And in most situations, I, I function pretty normally with my hearing. And so I can't help but be an optimistic technologist, Sam. Mm -hmm. If uh, Graham Clark in the 1970s in Australia didn't believe it was possible to stimulate one's auditory nerve with an electrical impulse, I may not be sitting here talking to you in this interview, and when I lived a year deaf, you know, that, that strong desire to be independent, to do what I used to do, just was overtaking me, and I began to appreciate why disabled people strive so hard to be independent. It, it is about their autonomy, it's about their freedom. So the title of this book, Autonomy, isn't just an autonomous economy or autonomous vehicles or the automobile economy. It's about freedom, and uh -huh. it's about what enables that freedom in our everyday lives. And yes, I'm an optimistic technologist. I've seen some remarkable things happen once science says something's possible, and engineers begin the learning cycles, and the market people begin to see the value creation, and you watch that whole thing converge. It's especially exciting when you're doing something as big as transforming the entire transportation system. And that's really autonomy, I think, gives the readers a pretty good understanding how did this all come about? Um, why would a guy like Burns be that optimistic about it? Why does he keep saying these benefits are so compelling? Then very importantly, how's it gonna impact me? I want everyday mainstream readers to reach out to this book. Um, I believe this is a good thing to have happen in our society. The sooner we can get it, the better. If we can get the full safety benefits of driverless cars implemented worldwide, we're going to eliminate over 90% of the crashes. There's 1.3 million people that die worldwide on the roadways. Doing that one day sooner saves 3,000 lives. That's a remarkable thing. I think the biggest risk we're talking about here is not getting to this end goal as soon as possible. My concern is there's so much vested interest in the 130-year-old transportation system, the oil companies, the insurance companies, the auto companies, the dealers, the road builders, the parking lot owners, the gas station owners, all of them, there's going to be a natural pushback. And I'm not criticizing that. That's human nature. The book is about creating a common understanding for a large number of people so we can get the collective will to get on with this. I want car dealers to read it. I want school teachers to read it. My wife's a hairstylist. I want her colleagues to read it. Um, and I want mid-career engineers to read it. What if you're the engineer in charge of designing steering wheels and you've got a guy like me talking about cars that don't need steering wheels? So this transformation is going to be huge from a job standpoint. The job's impact is going to go way beyond the driver. Think about the kind of vehicle we're talking about, an autonomous vehicle that's electrically driven 
will likely have about one-tenth as many parts in it as a conventional car. What does that mean for employment in the auto industry? It's a huge uh, implication. So I wanted people to understand that that's coming and give them a chance to get in front of it and perhaps train themselves or retrain themselves in a way that they can be relevant in that future value creation system. Yeah, and you know that's one of the things that I you know often talk about in in the presentations I give at various conferences is you know this mobility ecosystem and you know how do how can some of the various players be a part in this like you know you mentioned dealers you know um, you know if you if we're going to have these fleets of vehicles running around cities there's going to be a need for you know you mentioned you know energizing them charging them um, or or if they're fuel cell vehicles you know refueling them. They're going to need service and maintenance. You know, even an electric vehicle still has to get tires, yes. wiper blades, things yes. like that. Um, you know, and you know, things things will happen over time. You know, where sensors need to be calibrated. So there's 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 all kinds of things that need to be addressed. Uh, and you know, for for dealers, you know, they already have a lot of that infrastructure yes, in place. Absolutely. They have existing infrastructure yes. to do that service. It doesn't really matter if the vehicle is owned by an individual or by a fleet. You know they they can partner with either you know with uh, companies like Waymo as as Auto Nation's doing, um, or with OEM partners if you know if they're getting mm -hmm. involved in this space you know, like GM Cruise and, and other companies. So there there's lots of opportunities uh, to transition. Um, one one last thing I I, I know you uh, you have to go soon, but one last thing I want to get into is um, you know it's clearly important that we get to this goal as soon as possible for, for all the reasons we've discussed. Um, but I think it's also equally important that, you know, we take care along the way not to take shortcuts. Yes. Because, you know, if you want to improve safety, you know, you need to make sure the systems you're building are safe. And it's easy to not do that. You know, uh, we've certainly seen, you know, some instances, you know, earlier this year, you know, with Uber, uh, you know, and Anthony Lewandowski, who you talk about uh, quite a bit in, in the book, you know, some of the things that happened over the course of the last decade. Um, and more recently, there was a, a story last week, uh, uh, an investor, uh, and he's also a Stanford professor, uh, Andrew Ang, or Neg, I'm not sure how his last name is pronounced, uh, but, you know, talked about, you know, need, the requirement, they need to take shortcuts, retrain humans to you know how to how to behave around autonomous vehicles and to me that just doesn't seem realistic you know i mean uh, clearly i think we we don't want to take shortcuts and you know i think we need to you know as engineers you know I mean, one of the things i learned early on is that you need to you know developing abs systems is you need to factor in the human component absolutely yeah you know, absolutely so you know what, yeah yeah, the way this is is playing out, and the way it will continue to play out. Again, I talk about thinking big. Thinking big is autonomous electric vehicles deployed in transportation services, tailor designed for the typical trips we make, having a huge positive impact on several different dimensions of sustainability, whether it's energy, land use, fatalities, equality of access. Those are really big ideas. Start small. Um, we started with some races. Uh, Google started with 13 Priuses. Now they have a fleet of you know, several hundred uh, Chrysler Pacifica uh, hybrid um, vehicles operating in Chandler and, and learn fast. Um, nobody is saying this is ready to scale yet. 
Um, and when you think of the scale we're talking about, over a billion vehicles on the planet, um, there's a lot of work to get to a tipping point where this future begins to scale and we start harvesting these benefits. The good news is um, the regulators um, at state level, federal level, have enabled the learning to happen. We're not going to get to the full potential, either from a technology standpoint or a value creation standpoint, without doing it for real and real settings. And we're going to have to continue to learn. I think Chandler, Arizona, for example, is, an, is a great community that has opened itself up to allow that learning to occur. Um, and then I think once we get to a point where the level four autonomous capability creates a large enough envelope of boundaries around that definition of level four where we can create value, this, this thing will take off. But I don't think anyone yet is talking about scaling uh, mm -hmm. the solutions that we have. We're probably a few more generational cycles on the technology and very much so on the value sweet spots, which businesses are the right, right ones or use cases are the right ones to start with, mm -hmm. and then it'll start feeding on itself. I think it's inevitable, Sam. Um, oh, I, I, I agree. I, 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 yeah. it's, just, it's just a question of the timeline. Yeah, and yeah. I think a great principle for from business strategy is um, Tom Collins talked about get in front of the inevitable. And um, I, I see a lot of companies now doing that. Do you have to bet the farm right now? No. Uh, I don't think it's a bet the farm situation, but the last thing you want to do is find yourself short on knowledge and know-how. Uh-huh. And to, for people who are out there saying they're in denial still, saying this isn't going to happen, and they're not investing in getting the knowledge, I think they're going to be in trouble. You don't oh, get yeah. the you don't get the knowledge from a conference. You don't get it from reading in a journal. You get it from doing it, being on the cutting edge of creating that knowledge. And so, if you don't have that advanced development capability in your own company, you better find ways to partner with those companies who do, so you can get a window in to understand just how fast this could move. Larry Burns, thank you so much for your time today. The book is uh, Autonomy, The Quest for the Driverless Car. and How it will reshape your world. How it will reshape your world. And uh, everybody should get a copy and read it. It's, it's a fascinating read. There's, there's a lot of interesting stories in there, a lot of interesting characters. And provides some good insights as to where the, the world hopefully will be going in the coming years. And it's great to see that you're still involved in, in the industry and in, in, in helping shape the way we get around the world so. and, and playing a part in that. Thank you Thank very you. much. Thanks for your time. Thank you. All right. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.